Yep. All right, well, please open up your Bibles to the fourth chapter of Revelation. Last week, we looked at all of chapter four and chapter five, not in depth or in detail, of course, but I wanted for us to see the grandeur of this whole first part of the second vision that John receives. He's given this vision of the throne in heaven, and it's filled with symbolic imagery, much of which is tied to previous revelation given to prophets in the Old Testament. And it really is amazing. Uh, John sees something that is astounding, but it's not something that's absolutely unique to him. There are others in the course of redemptive history, the history specifically contained in the Bible, that have seen things that are similar. And we're going to, with the Spirit's help tonight, point out those things in the hopes that we'll have a better understanding of the, of the glory that's contained in God's Word so that tonight and in the coming weeks. So we're going to begin with reading all of chapter 4 tonight. We're not going to go over every detail in it this evening, but I want to read the whole chapter again because the whole chapter is painting a picture of Yahweh on the throne, sovereign over creation. So we'll pray after we read. But the reading of God's word beginning at verse 1 in Revelation 4. After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit. And behold, the throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and seated on the thrones were twenty-four elders, clothed in white garments, with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, and rumblings, and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it, was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal, and the throne on each side of the throne are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature like the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the twenty-four elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. That ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and sufficient word. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we are thankful for your word. And this vision that you gave to John, we also praise you and thank you for doing that. And we ask that you would help us to understand it now and and even over the next coming sermons as well, Lord. We are dependent upon you, Holy Spirit, for such understanding. And we ask, Lord, that you would help us to rightly understand your word, for me to say what is only right and true, and that Christ to, is to be exalted in that. Uh, help us, Lord, to listen with a profitable ear, uh, not one that is distracted and and is focused upon other things, but let us be focused on this glorious word that you have preserved for us all these years. And we pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. All right, well, I'm trying to keep up with this air conditioner right here. But to begin, I wanted us to think about what it means for God to be sovereign. I mean, we profess as Christians that God, the King of the universe, the Lord of all, is sovereign. What does that mean, though? I mean, sometimes we consider sovereignty in light of saying that like, the king of a nation is sovereign 
or even more commonly today, you'll hear people say that certain nations are sovereign, but that's not quite the same thing. We're thinking of now that God, that Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the triune God, unbegotten Father, eternally begotten Son, and the Holy Spirit who proceeds from both of them, that he is sovereign. And what does that mean? Well, the best thing that we can do and want to understand something about God is to go to his word, go to the Bible. We have a book and we should use it. Now, depending on what translation of the Bible you have, God is called sovereign a number of times in it. Some translations, when you see the phrase, in the ESV at least, for example, um, the phrase, the Lord God, some translations will translate that as sovereign God. But for the ESV, uh, since that's the translation that we use here, it only actually contains the word, when it's speaking about God, specifically sovereign, only three times. In Acts 4, in 1 Timothy 6, and in Revelation 6. And we'll obviously get to Revelation 6 here at some point. But in each of those other instances, and even in Revelation 6, sovereignty and God being sovereign has something to do with God creating and ruling, which is appropriate. But there are many other passages in, in a plain way that describe what it means for God to be sovereign. Our passage in Revelation 4 isn't exactly plain. It's apocalyptic literature, after all. So let's consider a few passages and about what it means for God to be sovereign. And if you remember, actually, all these verses were verses that we were committing to memory in 2021. So first, Ephesians 1.11 tells of the fact it tells of an aspect of God's sovereignty. Ephesians 1.11 says, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So look at the sovereign plan of God. I mean, making those who believe in him heirs with Christ was not just some random act. It was not just some shake of the dice. But this was God's plan from all eternity. By definition, God is sovereign, directing all things freely according to his own royal counsel. God's predestination gives his people tremendous comfort, for they know that all who come to Christ through God's enabling grace and appointment will actually do so and be preserved. And let me ask you, can all things here in the context of Ephesians 1.11 mean anything but all things? Let me remind you of what it says. It says, that he, according to the purpose of him, who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Well, it has to be understood as all things. All things being worked according to his sovereign royal counsel. Every, or, or who works all things according to the counsel of his will, is best understood to mean that every single event that occurs in some sense is predestined by God. He's in control. He's sovereign. And that's not to minimize our actions when, when, they, when God says that or when it's revealed in Scripture. In Ephesians 4-6, to 6, for example, we read of many moral commands that we are instructed to obey. And that's part of God's sovereign plan as well. God uses human means to fulfill what he has ordained. And so think, since everything happens according to the counsel of God's will, what should we make of tragedies and evil? Well, I mean, we don't blame God for them, but... The doctrine of God's sovereignty is a means of comfort and assurance through them, making us confident that evil will not triumph, that God's plan for his people will be fulfilled. And that actually brings us to another text, Romans 8.28, which says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. God weaves 
all things together for good for his children. The, the quote good in this context doesn't refer to like earthly comforts, but to conformity to Christ, to closer fellowship with God. In other words, for our sanctification, he works everything that happens to us for those who love him and are called according to his purpose towards our sanctification, which then leads to us bearing more good fruit for the kingdom. And finally, it leads to our glorification. Uh, Christians can be assured that all things work together for good. God has always been technically doing good to them, even before they were saved. Even starting before creation, the distant past, uh, continuing in their conversion, which would be the recent past for the one who was saved, and then on to the day of Christ's return, which would be the future. Colossians 1, 16-17 reads, For by him all things were created in heaven and in earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things are held together. The him there is Jesus and all of those examples. And so we see Christ is Lord of creation. Jesus is the Lord, the maker and the upholder of all things in the universe. Jesus did not come into existence when he was born of the Virgin Mary. He is the eternally begotten Son, and he was the agent of creation through whom God made heaven and the earth. He's fully God. And this passage tells us that the sovereign God, Jesus Christ, continually sustains his creation, preventing it from falling into chaos or despair. Why does the whole universe not just implode? I mean, I, I understand that sometimes, you know, scientists might tell you that, that might happen, or there's going to be some massive meteor that hits the world that's going to just destroy the earth and kill life. It's not going to happen. Because God has made promises, and he is the one who upholds this, the earth and all of the universe. Isaiah 45, 7. I form light and I create darkness. I make well-being and calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. The Lord's creative and wise purposes stand behind everything. Notice the two spectrums. Light and darkness, well-being and calamity. The point is, Everything in between them as well is dealt with from the Lord. Therefore, his people should not be discouraged when the appearances of history seem contrary to his promises. Far from being a problem to cope with, God's sovereignty over all things is the only hope we have for salvation and righteousness in this world. And part of Isaiah's words here serve to warn us against, the challenge, against challenging God's right to do his will his own way. Proving or uh, putting God under suspicious scrutiny is a grave sin. And we'll see that with the Job passage as well. We'll get there in just a moment. But created beings, which is what we all are, are not to demand explanations from him. Why? Because God is sovereign. Proverbs 16.33, then we'll get to that Job passage. The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Are you guys remembering these verses from last year? Maybe not. <laughs> I don't know. Um, casting lots involves random selection or distribution of objects in order to make a choice uncontrolled and unbiased by the participants of that choice. And in Israel, it was typically performed uh, like before the Lord. You read that in Joshua 18.8. And they would do that in order to see, receive the Lord's direction, where it's not something that is imposed upon by the people that are participating in it. And you see what that's saying about God's sovereignty right then. 
things which seem random to us are actually under God's providential governance. He's controlling them. He is working them. And then Job 42.2, Job says, I know, he's talking to God, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. That's his second speech with God. And the Lord asked Job particularly about his power in relation to himself and the other creatures that he's made. And Job, at this point, is directly aware of God in a way that he never really has been before. And he responds by humbly submitting to God's sovereign, sovereign, sovereignty, as well as repentively despising himself for his earlier wild words, which God rebuked him for. While Job had rightly defended himself against his friends' accusations of sin and defined his circumstances as being governed by God, he had drawn conclusions about what his affliction meant that did not account sufficiently for what was hidden in the knowledge and the purposes of God. And what he comes to see in saying what he told God in verse 42-2 is what the psalmist in 115-3 says. He says, My Lord is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Now, the Lord's plans can't be thwarted. He is sovereign, and he works them all according to the wise counsel of his own will. Article 1, the third chapter of the Second London Baptist Confession, begins like this. It says, From all eternity, God decreed everything that occurs without reference to anything outside of himself. That is what Baptists have, many Baptists, not all Baptists, but many Baptists have confessed happily and joyfully and biblically for the last, you know, 400 years. Um, declaring that God has decreed everything that occurs. He's sovereign. Jerry Bridges, in Trusting God, writes, This is the essence of God's sovereignty, his absolute independence to do as he pleases, and his absolute control over the actions of all his creatures. No creature, person, or empire can either thwart his will or act outside the bounds of his will. That is what is meant when we read and we say God is sovereign. And it's just a, a small sampling, really, of the passages that we could go to in the Bible. Well, what we have here in chapter 4 is a way of expressing that God is sovereign, but through symbolic apocalyptic literature. It's expressing the very same things that we just read about, but through symbolic imagery. And especially in chapter 4, the focus is on God's sovereignty over all of creation. And our focus for this evening is going to be just on the, the first three verses. But this specific theme is all throughout chapters 4 and chapters 5, so we'll be re revisiting it over the coming weeks. But consider what we just read concerning this apocalyptic description of the throne. The, the grandeur of God is put on display for us. And just think of how, how unique and how rare such a vision is. I mean, there have only been a handful of people who have seen such glorious things that the Apostle John saw. Uh, you have Daniel, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Amos, Amos uh, Micaiah in 1 Kings 22. Job gives some details about the throne room of God. I'm sure you remember that. He talks about an interaction with the angels coming before the throne, and specifically Satan, but he doesn't actually really describe it. He just mostly talks about the, those details. And Moses, when he receives the law in Exodus, there are some things there that elude to the throne in heaven. Uh, Zechariah had visions that line up with Revelation, but not quite visions of the throne room. And we'll consider you know, those texts all and more in the coming weeks. In the New Testament, though, you have the Apostle Paul mentioning that he was caught up to the third heaven in the Spirit, but it doesn't really give any details about it. And then, of course, you have this vision here with John, 
which is the lengthiest description of all in all of scripture about this throne room in heaven. But think of what is actually transpiring in these texts and the kindness of God in giving us these glimpses. We are too sinful to be around such glory ourselves. If this throne existed on earth and man somehow happened to like stumble upon it and find it, the gloriousness of it, the glory of God would be deadly to us. In Exodus 33, God tells Moses, you cannot see my face for no man can see me and live. Why? Because man is sinful and fallen in Adam and God's glory is is too pure, too righteous. The tabernacle, which represented God's heavenly presence on earth with his people, had similar warnings associated with it. Numbers 18.22 says, The sons of Israel shall not come near the tent of meeting again, or they will bear sin and die. And Numbers 1.51, So when the tabernacle is to set out, the Levites shall take it down. And when the tabernacle encamps, the Levites shall set it up. But the layman, in other words, someone who's not a Levite, when that person comes near, he shall be put to death. Why? Because the, the glory of the Lord is, is too great. And God has set it up in specific ways in which it is to be revealed. And so these looks that we have in Scripture, and especially the look that we have here in Revelation, remember how Revelation 4.1 starts? He says, uh, after this, I looked. And there, these looks, they are the kindness of God to give us, sinners, this sort of insight. The greatness of God would not be as clear to us if it were not for texts like this. And it's God's sovereign purpose for humanity, at least all of humanity that comes in contact with this letter, to have some understanding of God's sovereignty as displayed from heaven, which is what this account is telling us about. Now, I don't say that in ignorance of Romans 1. Uh, Romans 1, remember I was saying last week we should all read Romans 1 every every day for the month of June. Or actually, it's 1 Corinthians 6. I said 7 last week. I meant 6. But Romans 1, 19 through 20 says this. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. Well, we understand, right, that although the divine nature, the indivi- excuse me, the indivisible, indivisible, invisible, attributes of God and his eternal power has all been shown to us through creation, but our ability to understand them has been impacted by the fall. It's been damaged in our fallen nature. There is enough revelation for us there in creation uh, for us to be without excuse, but all of our theological musings, especially apart from being united to Christ and being born again, are not to be trusted completely. And that's kind of logical in one sense. I mean, you're not going to go up to an atheist to try to find out about God. Hopefully you wouldn't, at least. You would hopefully go to a trusted pastor, an elder, or someone like that, or someone who's known the Lord for a long time. So certainly, um, knowing things about God can be deduced from creation, but it's impacted by the fall. After all, I mean, that is why you have so many throughout history who end up worshiping false gods rather than Yahweh. It's because the reality of God is plain, yet because of sin, people often come to wrong conclusions. Sometimes they get some things correct. I'm thinking specifically about some of the writings of like Aristotle and Plato 
or even how the Gentiles who didn't receive the law keep the law, uh, even though no one told them the specifics of it, as we read in Romans 2. But that's rare. And when that is discovered, and when truth is discovered, it's always God's truth because God is truth. And truth exists because of who God is even. The general or natural revelation can only go so far. And it actually serves to condemn people further, as we read in Romans 2. But scripture, which is special revelation, gives us more than general revelation. It gives us the story of redemption. And we're going to see that especially when we get to chapter 5. But scripture also elaborates on things that can be perceived through general revelation as well, like we have here in chapter 4. But in greater detail and without error, right? I mean, the, the words of Revelation 4, as well as all of Scripture, are from God. And therefore, they are without error. They're infallible and they're inerrant. They could be misunderstood by us, but they are given to us by God, free from error. Especially that's the case in the original manuscripts. And so just think, even someone who does not have the mind of Christ, someone who's not saved, in other words, because of the advancement and the success and the growth of God's kingdom, many people can pick up the Bible in their own native language and read about the glorious Savior and, the, and his sovereignty and his majesty and the wonder that is being put forth here in chapter 4. That is a kindness and mercy of God. That even a person who's a lost person, a person who doesn't even know about God can do that. I remember before I was a Christian myself, I had found a Bible, my, my mom's a Bible that someone had probably just donated to my mom and it was left in the house. And I started reading it and I didn't believe in, in God, but nevertheless, I was reading true words from God about God in that book. But people, especially that is people who are saved have, have, purposely been given this revelation from God for the intent of understanding and knowing. The Lord God is wanting us to understand his sovereignty over creation here in this passage, in this book, from the, as it is displayed from the throne room in heaven, through all of this symbolic imagery. And remember how the apocalypse starts. Jesus is wanting us to know the things contained in this book. He says we're blessed for hearing and keeping them even in verse, uh, chapter 1 verse 3. And so we need to understand it correctly. And so we'll consider the details, but you must remember that the various objects that John sees and describes don't physically exist. Chapters one, or chapters four through five, the things he's describing aren't things that physically exist. We're, you must remember that, as William Hendrickson says, in a physical form, they says, or in a physical and material form, He's describing them, but they actually express an important spiritual truth. These details aren't giving us a physical description of or a picture of heaven, but it's describing the entire universe from the aspect of heaven and the God who sits on the throne of all creation. Okay, and they're teaching one main lesson. The things in chapter 4 and 5, that is, as well. We're not chasing after some deeper meaning or something that um, is like hyper spiritualize or an analogy there's not something like that we're looking at them and we're understanding that they are all giving to us one strong message and that is this that the lord is on the throne and he's governing all things which include of course creation and redemption and this understanding of god's sovereignty is is what the church will need in light of chapter six and what comes after that as well too 
So with that said, let's consider some of the specifics here at the opening of part four. Uh, we went, or chapter four, we went over last week what is meant by after this. Uh, that's the start of the second cycle of visions that John is receiving. And the first thing we read is, behold, a door standing open in heaven. Now we know what an open door means in our culture today, right? It's an invitation to come in. But how is a door opened in heaven? I mean, not everyone can just go there. And so this is echoing what Jesus already said to the church in Philadelphia. Revelation 3, 8 says this, I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Well, we don't get to heaven by ourselves. Jesus says it like this in John 3 that a person must be born again, even to see the kingdom of God, that Jesus must open that door, in other words, by his life, his death, and his resurrection as the means by which we have a, a door that opens to us in heaven. It's Christ's works and not ours that merit salvation in heaven for us. And, and as Jesus says to the church in Philadelphia, he knows our works. He knows if we are self-righteous or if we have faith in Christ and Christ alone for salvation. And by grace, we keep his word and we don't deny his name because the response, because that is the response that we have to his gracious working of redemption being applied to us. And so John begins with this encouraging phrase, showing believers especially, showing the elect that God is controlling all things in the universe from his glorious vantage point of being the only God Almighty. And then John hears a voice as it were, behind the door. And not that it's a literal door, remember, but from inside heaven. And it's like a trumpet. And it's the first voice he heard, meaning that it's the voice he heard before. It's none other than the voice of Jesus. The same voice that he heard back in Revelation 1, verse 10, uh, which was there said he heard a loud voice like a trumpet. It's the voice of the exalted Christ, the glorious Christ. And he calls John to, quote, show him what must take place after this. And this is in that phrase is in reference to Daniel 2 and the vision of the latter days that was given to Nebuchadnezzar, or as one of our deacons calls him, Nebi. And from that vantage point of, of John, who is in time, it is in reference, him saying this to John here, it's in reference to events that are past, present, and future. You'll see that when we get to Revelation 12 really clearly, actually, I think, because in Revelation 12, we read about the birth of Jesus. Revelation 12 is talking about events associated with the birth of Jesus. So remember, again, Revelation, this book, this apocalypse, doesn't come to us in a linear format. It comes to us in a cyclical format, looking at past, present, and future all together at the same time. But the things which must take place after this are referring again to the last days, the latter days then, the time after the resurrection of Christ, which continues until his second coming. Because now, after that event, the resurrection, the eternally begotten Son, who took to himself a human nature at his first coming, is now glorified, and Jesus is ruling and reigning, even with the redeemed saints in heaven. And he's living to make intercession for us, Hebrews 7. And so Jesus is showing John and us that God is sovereign over all creation throughout this whole church age. Throughout the whole church age. Right now Jesus is reigning and he's ruling. And even 
in some way that is mysterious for us to comprehend. We are ruling and reigning with him because of who he is and what he has done for us. But John is showing us in, in this revelation, or Jesus is showing John and us, I should say, that that is happening right now, and it's been happening for the last 2,000 years, and it will continue to happen until Jesus comes again. It spans the whole time between his first and second coming. And so verse 2, Jesus called John up. He's, he's raptured, as it were, and he's in the Spirit. He wasn't in the Spirit before, but now he is. Uh, the Holy Spirit, notice Spirit is capitalized in our text, is referring to the Holy Spirit, and he's giving John this special insight, very much in the same way as Ezekiel was, or as the Apostle Paul was, as he described in 2 Corinthians. We'll consider those in coming weeks. But look at the first thing that he mentions. There is a throne standing in heaven, and one seated on that throne. God himself, that is, is seated on the throne. The throne is the very center of the universe that John is seeing. And in coming weeks, we'll see about these things that exist around the throne, uh, the, the other thrones around it. There's elders on the throne. There's these four spiritual beings. But again, remember, it's not John's not seeing physical things. He's not describing for us a picture of heaven. He's telling us what... He's telling us about God's sovereign control and his ruling reign through these um, symbolic images. William Hendrickson says that the throne of God is the true foundation for astronomy. Uh, Christians in history past were wrong when they thought everything revolved around the earth. And then Copernicus and Galileo turn out to be merely less wrong than early Christians, although correct when they said that the earth and the planets revolved around the sun. But the point that is being communicated to us here is that the universe actually is theocentric. Everything revolves around God. He's central. He's the most important. All things are happening according to the counsel of his will. He's upholding things and nothing at all at the farthest reaches of the universe are excluded from his dominion. That was true for John in his day. That is true for us in our day. That is true from before God ever created anything at all. And it will remain true forever because it is who God is. He is the center of all things. And this imagery that we have here is telling us that. The word throne occurs 17 times in these two chapters, more than any other word in this section. And it's symbolic of God's sovereign control, which is driving everything else in, that happens at any time and anywhere, even in hell, right? There's no area of existence in which God is not Lord over. Yahweh is seated on the throne. The Father especially is in view here, though, and he's not worried. He's not stressing. He's not anxious. He's sitting. And since, and you know, again, that's an anthropomorphism, right? God is a spirit. He's not doesn't have to sit on an actual throne. He can't sit. He doesn't have a butt. But since God himself can't be described, since he is a pure spirit without a body like man, it's his radiant that is being described here. Verse 3. He has the appearance, the appearance of jasper and carnelian. He's represented by a glorious flashing light. We'll see more of that in verse 5. But interestingly, Carnelian and Jasper were the first and last gem in the high priest's ephod, or ephod. Remember that the special clothing that Aaron was instructed to, to wear, and then the high priest had to wear it after him 
um, all the way down throughout the old covenant time period of God's interacting with humanity and specifically the nation of Israel. Well, Carnelian and Jasper were the bookend stones, I guess you would call, of that breastplate. And I think that is alluding to God's sovereignty and worship, which was the topic we'll be saving for next week. But look, as well, there's a rainbow around the throne. And a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald, which is an interesting description of a rainbow. It sounds very Irish. So you seem a green emerald, is what you're thinking. Um, what's interesting about this description of a rainbow is that rainbows don't actually look like emeralds. It's probably speaking of the brightness and the splendor of it. But it's also a reminder that this vision isn't containing literal physical items. Because again, rainbows don't look like emeralds. What it does signify is a reminder of God's promise to his creation, given back in the days of Noah. That no matter how wicked things might get in the latter days, God is withholding his wrath for the day of the Lord. It speaks of his mercy, as in the days of Noah, when one was saved by grace. Now is the time for people to flee to Christ for redemption and for forgiveness and for new life and for peace with God. It's what we're seeing there. And it also evokes the glory of God and his radiance along with the two emeralds or the two jewels mentioned earlier. Look what Ezekiel says in a similar vision. This is Ezekiel, Ezekiel 128. And Ezekiel's describing what he saw. He says, like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud on the day of rain, so was the appearance of the brightness all around. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face, and I heard the voice of one speaking. We'll get back to Ezekiel 1 in coming weeks as well. But it would seem that John and Ezekiel are seeing the same, seeing the same thing, and they're describing it themselves. Now, for the sake of time tonight, we're going to stop here. But we have a couple of points of application for us to consider. So first... The clear message of chapters 4 and 5 is that God is sovereign and ruling from the throne. No matter what is going on in this world, it is all happening according to the counsel of God's will. And sometimes, of course, it seems like the world is spinning out of control. People are always saying things like, oh, well, we're living in unprecedented times. Or, oh, you know, I just wish things would get back to normal. And those things may be true experientially even. I mean... You can even think of the seven churches who this letter was originally written to, the circular letter. It was first given to those seven churches that were described in chapters 2 and 3. They were all experiencing some sort of trial, some sort of suffering. Many of them had been subjected to great earthquakes in previous generations. Some of them had been ransacked and pillaged by warring nations. They were persecuted by people who rejected Jesus and who were stuck in the pharisaical perversion of the old covenant. And when we read the rest of Revelation, we'll see that these kinds of things are typical for the age that we're living in. Sometimes, from our vantage point, our human vantage point, it seems like God is not ruling and reigning and in control. But the, because we, because in our minds, we think that, oh, if God is ruling and reigning and in control, then nothing bad would happen. No trials and no suffering would happen because we know God is good. But that's not the case. The testimony of our text and the rest of Scripture is that that's far from the truth. It doesn't matter what things look like to us, to us because God is truly sovereign and everything is happening according to his purpose. And no one can thwart his plans. And for those who trust God, 
knowing that he is sovereign is a great comfort to us. Even though things look crazy, God is sovereign and he's working through these means to sanctify us and to conform us to Christ. He's bringing good through them. He's building his kingdom through them. Just think about it. How often does God gain victory through what looks like defeat? We only need to look to the cross because there it seemed like all hope was lost. But at the cross, sinners were being redeemed. Sin was being atoned for. So God works through these things that look like like they are bad. And he's sovereign. He's in control. Do you find yourself prone to worry? Are you the type of person to complain and to be anxious? Well, then I would compel you to study deeply this doctrine of God's sovereignty. And, and this doctrine, and the revelation of God's sovereignty, I should say. Charles Spurgeon said, The sovereignty of God is the pillow upon which the child of God rests his head at night, giving perfect peace. And why can we have that peace? It's because we know that God is in control of it all. We aren't. We aren't in control of very much at all. That's true. I don't know if that hurts or not. But we aren't in control. But it's good and praise the Lord that he, that Yahweh is in control. That he is sovereign. Even when things are looking crazy to us. He is sovereign and in control. And that brings me to a final point of application for tonight. This happens to be June 1st. And our culture loves to show its depravity during this month, celebrating the sexual perversions of homosexuality and transgenderism. Nearly every major public corporation and company is going to show their hatred for God's created order and, and God himself and his will for humanity by donning, donning, or donning a rainbow as their corporate sign. Donning, donning, donning. Thank you. So... The very thing that God set forth as a sign of his mercy to his creation back in Genesis, the very thing that God's glorious radiance and that represents God's glorious radiance and is around his throne, symbolizing the peace that he has with those who are united to Christ, is this image of the rainbow that the world is going to take and plaster all over everything in celebration of that which God calls evil. And friends, it's becoming increasingly clear that this is going to become an issue that we can't run or hide from or be silent on. Miss Valerie was even just saying today about you know, at her school how there's these things are coming to a boil in between some of the, the teacher who's a Christian and children who are not Christian. Nevertheless, God is sovereign, and our goal as redeemed people is to bow the knee to Jesus and to obey him and to fear him and not the culture that we're living in and that's the same in every generation of course ours just and there's different reasons and different issues that might happen in other generations but in our generation it just seems to be this right now it's not the absolute worst sin that there is or it's not a sin that's unforgivable but our culture is using it as a litmus test of what is acceptable or not and my encouragement to you is to not care what the world thinks god is sovereign He is good. We must be loving. And the loving thing to do is to tell the truth. Now, you should do that in a way that's not mean or evil. But we must stand for truth, friends. Carl Truman, in an article he wrote for today, says this. He says, the use of the rainbow symbol should be particularly egregious to Christians. 
It is the primary instrument by which the LGBTQ movement asserts its ownership of the culture, and it's the means of telling those of us who dare to dissent that we should have no place in the public square anymore. It tears at God's creation order and design for family relations and social stability. And it's also a blasphemous desecration of a sacred symbol, taking that which is intended as a sign of God's love and faithfulness and of our dependence upon him and turning it into an aggressive symbol of human autonomy and sexual decadence. And so surely the Christian cause of this month should be opposing Pride Month and its flag as public and strident a way as many have opposed racism and its symbols. And we can do so, friends. What Carl, what Dr. Truman advises, we can do that opposing this wicked generation, knowing that God is sovereign and his will is being done. And one day we know that it will be done on earth as it is in heaven, where sin will have no impact. Let's pray. Lord God, you are good and holy, and we thank you for showing us these things in your word, that you are the truly sovereign being. There is none like you. You are the only God. And so we praise you, Father, Son, and Spirit, and ask that you would impress upon us a better understanding of your sovereignty and our need for you and a trust in you, so that this doctrine, this truth, that is even knowable in creation, in general revelation, that it would become a source of great comfort and peace to us, Lord. We pray that you would help us especially to be salt and light in in this culture that we live in that is according to your will, becoming all the more dark and all the more wicked and evil, giving even a whole month to the celebration of something that will continue to break down the family and further... Um, dirty and stain uh, image bearers. And so we ask, Lord, that uh, you would give us boldness if it is ever in your will for us to be put in a situation in which we have to stand up for the truth. We pray for wisdom in those times, asking for the courage to say what must be said, and that you would help us to do so uh, in a way that would glorify and honor you. Give us understanding, Lord. We're so grateful for your word and this this look that we have into heaven. Help us to understand it rightly, that we may be sanctified and continue to grow in Christ. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, guys, any questions, anything I can try to make more clear? Uh, Donning, not doning, or doning? That's how I was talking about. about I don't know, because there's 12 of them in there, right? And so each emerald, if we read in Exodus, it has a correlation to the 12 tribes. There's an aspect of that to it. But in what you do see happening, like in commentators with Revelation, is they want to read into, oh, like, well, the color of this one is red. So that must mean, you know, blood and atonement and the color of this one is that. And there are some times when, you know, we've talked about how white has a meaning before. But again, and emeralds have a color. But we want with this greater vision of the throne room that we have here in chapters four and five, we want to try, I think the best method of interpretation is to try to shy away from maybe looking too closely at all the different elements and try and, and better to see 
all of the things described in light of that bigger picture, which is that God is sovereign and in control of everything and Lord of everything that happens in this age that we're living in. So that's why I tend, that's why I think, well, why choose just those two stones, the beginning and the end, the bookends? And I think it, it's compelling us to think about God's sovereignty and light of worship, which we're going to look at that. I think maybe next week, because it talks about the 24 elders, how they sit around the throne and they throw their crowns down, which is a really interesting passage. Like, I mean, are they, do they do that and then they put it back on and they take it back off? Are they wearing an infinite amount of crowns? Like, I don't know. We have to think about that stuff and talk about it next week. The, the band? I don't think so. Yeah, yeah, I think so. But I, I mean, think what we're thinking. I mean, I'll try to show you this picture. I mean, if you, if you can think of it in your head, What's being described here is this room, and you have in it like a throne in the middle, and then around it there's 24 thrones, and there's 24 people sitting on them, and then there's north, south, east, and west. East and west. There's these four angelic creatures, but they're not. He's not actually describing a physical thing to us. He's 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 putting these things in the place and the position that they are in order to tell a point about God's sovereignty and His control. They're symbolic. And so I don't think that right now, if you were if we were to somehow go to heaven, you would see a throne and twenty four thrones around it. Okay. And do I'm assuming God just like made it known to him where north, south, east, or west, or do that like tell an angel to just hand him a <laughs> No. And again, I think it's we're not meant to get from this. Oh, this is a picture of what heaven looks like. I could draw a picture of it. This is physically how it looks. The placement of these things is to convey a theological message. All people debate too. I'm, I'm looking forward to studying more about the 24 elders. So I think generally, I've just kind of assumed always it's the um, 12 apostles and the 12 patriarchs. And so, like, thinking old covenant and new covenant. But I think there's, I've been reading, there's a case that actually sounds a little bit more viable about it being, um, again, related to worship, but containing that picture, but maybe secondary. So probably get to that next week. All right, guys.